Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and this show is my way of sharing advice on composing and songwriting from all sorts of creative people. You can download or stream every episode at ComposerQuest.com or iTunes or Stitcher. The music you're hearing, called Lacrime, was composed by today's guest, Justin Merritt. Justin teaches composition and music theory at St. Olaf here in Minnesota, and it'll become pretty obvious that he has a brilliant mind for theory. In his process of writing this piece, Lacrime, he invented a whole new system for creating scales and modulating, which he calls his clock system. Even if you're not a music theory person, I recommend sticking it out through the technical parts because Justin also shares some great advice he's gleaned from Buddhist philosophy and from his own composition professors. We also get a sneak preview of some of Justin's pieces from his upcoming album. Before we get into our talk, I have a patron shout-out here to John Brantingham. John also has a composition podcast called The Art of Composing. It's a great balance between practical tips and big-picture philosophies about composing, and I kind of think of it like composer therapy. Make sure to check it out at artofcomposing.com. And thanks again, John, for being a patron of ComposerQuest. If any other fans out there would like to help support ComposerQuest by becoming a patron, please visit patreon.com charlie. Thanks for considering it. One last piece of news, if you missed the announcement episode, we have a new ComposerQuest quest happening right now, which is to write piano music for four hands. Make sure to send your piece to me, charlie at composerquest.com, on or before April 23rd. You can find out more about this quest at composerquest.com quest8. And if you're in Minnesota, come check out the performance on May 4th, May the 4th be with you, Star Wars Day, at Underground Music Cafe at 6 p.m. Hope to see you there. Now let's get on to my talk with Justin Merritt. Justin, thanks for coming in to Compose a Quest. Very happy to be here. I've been listening to the podcast. It's so great. I'm, I'm very excited to be on it. Oh, well, thanks. I can tell this is going to be a fun music theory nerd talk already because <laughs> we were already talking about Neo-Romanian um, analysis. Yeah. Which... <laughs> as, as you would. Yep. But yeah, so you've had um, quite a bit of theory and composition training in your life. Sure, I, I guess. So. I mean, it was all always composition for me and theory was always something that I did in addition. So, you know, I studied theory as a minor in graduate school. But then when I started teaching, I teach theory. And so it, it's great. I, I, I tell my composition students, at least, that music theory can be incredibly inspiring. I mean, ideas that you would never have, you can get from looking at other people's music, but also your own, you know. Uh, very often, I'll be two-thirds of the way through a piece, I'll have no idea what it's about. And then I'll go back and kind of analyze my own work, and I suddenly realize, oh my god, this is what I've been working with. These are the tools I've been using in an unconscious way. And then it can be really inspiring. It's like, well, that's what the focus of the piece is now that I know technically what I'm doing, right? Now, it can be the other thing, too. It can get in the way if you try to do too much pre-composition, right? You get to the point where suddenly you have no room to work anymore. Yeah. So let's say you realize that you're doing this theory thing <laughs> consistently. I mean, how do you get to that point versus like just spewing out 
all sorts of things. <laughs> well, I, I t- you know, if you ever find out, let me know, because I have no idea how to do that. I mean, I, I could be consistent inside a piece, but uh, between pieces. I mean, th- there are composers that have created amazing careers out of a fairly minimum amount of material. I mean, uh, so- someone like uh, Steve Reich, for example, you know, has spent decades working with these small amount of materials, you know, the human voice, small canons, phasing and this just these few things he's created this incredible body of work or uh, Arvo Pert you know just this you know a handful of techniques I have a colleague in the art department uh, Mary Greep who all she does are these incredibly elaborate almost blueprint accurate versions of 11th century buildings and she's done several of these you know one from a Thai temple and a uh, a cathedral in Italy and all this and I, I ask her you know how can you do this, you know. It's how do you keep the concentration for years to create one piece because they're gigantic. Uh, it's an amazing level of focus that I absolutely don't have. I mean, <laughs> for almost from piece to piece, it's a new idea, a new way of working. You know, I'm almost embarrassed about it sometimes. But at least I can tell myself there are other composers that just keep trying new things, keep having new ideas. Someone like uh, Bill Bolcom, this great composer. But you never know what you're going to get. I mean, one piece, it's like a 1920s art song. Another piece, it's this sonic exploration of the piano. You just never know what you get from Bill Bolcom. Well, one piece I was listening to of yours that I really liked um, is Lacrimé. And you mentioned in that piece that you kind of created your own internal harmonic structure for that, or harmonic system, Yeah, I guess. This is something I've been working on for years. I... Um, I, I, it was inspired by Don Freund, the great composer in Indiana. And he was talking about major scales as following what he called the spectrum of fifths. And he just pointed out that, you know, you can form any major scale by stacking fifths, right? And I found this very inspiring. And then it kind of relates to the circle of fifths. And uh, it also shows, you know, in kind of a visual way, how you can modulate between all these different scale systems and keep having the same content, right? So G major has the same kind of content as C major, even though it has different collection of pitches. You just change out one pitch, you know, F natural for F sharp. So it occurred to me, this is really neat. And it's not the case with, say, an octatonic scale or a whole tone scale or any of the other modes of limited transposition. If I try to change one note of a whole tone scale, I don't get another whole tone scale. I get something completely different, right? It doesn't work anymore. And it's true for all the modes of limited transposition because of this symmetry, right? You have to change all six pitches of a whole tone scale to get another whole tone scale. So I, it occurred to me, what other kinds of modes have that property of modulation like the circle of fifths slash major scale does. And it turns out there aren't any, unless you take segments of the diatonic scale. So for example, a uh, pentatonic scale would have that. Or if you add another fifth to the major scale, right? And Hmm. so the first thing occurred to me was, oh my God, what happens if I add another fifth, right? And the answer is either Stravinsky's octad or the bebop scale, depending on how you want to look at it, right? Both of them have that, that property. So, so you're saying, like, by adding another fifth, do you mean, like, for example, you'd have the a minor third and a major third? Let me let me scale let me degree. This, way. this or... it's much easier to do visually. Sure, I have to sure. Say, you know, and and then I, I spent weeks like making like spirograph, you know, drawings <laughs> to try to make this uh, this work visually. But so say you t- you start with F, and you add fifths. You have F, C, G, D, A. B. Those are the pitches of C major. 
and they're formed by stacking fifths. If I add one more fifth, then I get the bebop scale or the octet. If I subtract a couple of fifths, I get a pentatonic scale, major pentatonic scale. Cool, right? Yeah. But it turns out no other interval works that way, right? So I couldn't stack thirds. If I stack major thirds, I get a, an augmented triad, but I don't get any kind of scale and you can't use it to modulate or anything like that. Minor thirds, you get a diminished chord. But I realized that if you used pairs of intervals, say for example, minor third, perfect fifth, minor third, perfect fifth, you could create modes, they could modulate, and they would keep the same property, but only every other modulation. Hmm. So it's a way of generating modes, of generating collections that is symmetrical in a really, really cool way, but also gives you this explosion of possibilities that you would never come up just by fiddling around on the piano, right? So I now have access to all of these modes that have a really tight modulation scheme. And depending on which modes you choose, you could write something that's very lush and lovely and sounds almost jazzy, or something that's incredibly dissonant and harsh, just depending on what mode you pick, how many pitches you choose to have in your collection, or so on. On the other hand, it's hard to work with, right? Because it's not something that you're coming up with by inspiration. It's or by ear. Or by ear, right, right, right. So if I choose to write something using this mode, I call, I'm calling them clocks because I always draw them in circles. And uh, if I choose to use one, then I have to take some time to get myself acquainted with the properties of that scale and that collection and how it modulates and how it works. And I also have to give myself permission to either cheat or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, so this uh, lacrime was one of the first pieces I wrote using that. And uh, I felt like I was still, you know, wrangling with it uh, more than uh, being inspired by it. But uh, what came out was something very kind of lush and romantic and lovely and sad and I, th I think beautiful.
when you're thinking in terms of those, or after working on a piece like that, do you start to instinctively hear this new system of modulating, or do you end up hearing it kind of as the circle of fifths version? <laughs> or I don't know. It's hard to. I think say. it's very hard for anyone to hear any music that they're not practically born with unless you really spend a lot of time with it. So the answer is, to a certain extent, yes. But even me, when I go away from one of these pieces for a while, I end up hearing it mostly in tonal terms, right? Sure. If it's a, a you know melodic, harmonic kind of piece. Sure. <laughs> well, in Lacrimé, that when I was listening to it, it kind of reminded me of Wagner's oh, writing. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and one thing I think I've noticed listening to him is that he constantly subverts your expectations of hearing the one chord, which I think you got to in that piece too, which you're constantly waiting for a nice home (laughs) one chord, but it never happens. Maybe even more uh, like Todenverklärung, the the Strauss or something like that. Oh, okay. Big, uh, you know, juicy orchestral sound. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's also just for string orchestra and so I tried to do everything I could with the string orchestra and I don't know for some reason it's not something that uh, that I can think of a lot of new pieces being written for for large string orchestra but it's a it's a fantastic ensemble yeah really beautiful so as a composition teacher what are some questions that your students ask you you know I, I was actually listening to one of your interviews from a while back when you were interviewing Dmitri Tomasko and he was talking about how being a composition teacher you ended up solving other people's problems a lot of the time I think that really gets to the heart of it you're not trying to teach them how to compose exactly because God knows nobody knows how to compose you know you just something comes out of you but there are certain problems that come up over and over again and the biggest one is I've got an idea I've got half a page of music now what do I do do I end it? Do I repeat it? Do I expand it somehow? And if I'm going to expand it somehow, how do I do that? <laughs> right? So the most common mistake, and certainly one I fall into all the time, is, well, just have another idea and another idea and another idea, right? And frankly, that makes sense because you're thinking, well, you want to have pieces that are very inventive. But when you listen to something like that, it's horrible because you can't follow it. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's no continuity. There's no feeling of unity. And that's something that is important in almost any kind of art to be able to feel that kind of sense of wholeness of a piece. That does seem to be the trickiest thing to do sometimes. Well, it gets back a little bit to what I was talking about with uh, being able to analyze your own music. That's one way to get a little inspiration is to look with a cold eye at what I've done, right? So letting that initial inspiration just flow out into the page, whether it's one line or 10 pages or whatever, and then be able to go back and look and and understand what you've done as a way of inspiring you to be able to play out that string. If someone gets to the point where they're stuck Mm. in a piece, what are some ways that you suggest getting unstuck? Uh, You know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from Sam Adler. One of the things that I really admired about what he taught was thinking about how performers would react to a piece. So one piece of advice he gave me that I'm sure he's given to like hundreds of students over the years was, imagine that you're sitting there in the audience, performer walks out on stage, solo violin, you know, the first down bow, what comes out of that instrument? And I now take it even further than that, too, down to, you know, everything that I write. I try to imagine the performer playing it. 
And you can come at that from a lot of perspectives, like technically, is it possible? If I can see, I can't play violin, but if I can see how the violinist can play it, it's technically possible or it's easy or it's hard or whatever needs to happen. If I am only working in the computer, I can be horribly misled in terms of tempo, in terms of difficulty, in terms of how it's gonna really sound on an instrument. Uh, that's true on the instruments that sound pretty good on computer, like some percussion instruments, and it's true of instruments that sound horrible on a computer, like solo strings, right? Because on a solo string, you want to get that sound out of there as fast as possible because it sounds so horrible, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you write music that's too fast, that doesn't have a, a sense of breath with it. So computer is beautiful. I use it. It's a great tool, but even more important to be deeply connected with the visceral aspect of your piece. What's it going to feel like to play? What's it going to feel like to hear? What's it going to feel like to be in that space with your music? Any other tidbits of wisdom that you've gleaned from your teachers that comes back to you? You know, uh, uh, one of my other teachers was Sven David Sandstrom, Swedish uh, composer, this amazing composer. But uh, he, he liked to say, this piece is stupid in a special sort of way. And he meant that as a compliment. <laughs> he meant that I get it. I can hear this piece and I can see into the mechanism. I can see into the workings of this piece. The composer isn't obscuring what's going on in order to look smart. They aren't trying to paper over flaws in their piece. They're willing to let it be completely audible what they're doing. Be willing to look stupid in order to write a piece that communicates. Now, if you know his music, that doesn't mean that he wrote dunderheaded music in the sense of not inventive or extremely conservative or anything like that. He has music that's wildly experimental, but he made an effort to let audiences in on the tricks. And all that's left is his melodic skill. And so if you can write music that's stupid in a special sort of way, man, you're going to go far. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Reich earlier in his phasing. Yeah. And when I was listening to your piece Glyph, I kind of oh, thought yeah. of that because like Steve Reich is this piano phase. <laughs> uh, it's just one of the most inspirational pieces to me ever. Have um, you seen the performances where one person will, will play? Will play both parts? Both, um, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't even imagine that, but... <laughs> But um, yeah, for people who haven't heard that piece, it's kind of like there's one continuous rhythmic idea played over and over again, and then a second piano plays the exact same thing, but they slowly get out of phase with each other and then create all these interesting rhythms and new melodies kind of within that. Well, but the, yeah. yeah, but your piece, Glyph, I think it was somehow the electronics you used with the piano yeah or, yeah what 
how did you compose that? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you that that's one of the damnedest pieces. I, I just still can't believe it really happened. So it was uh, just about a year ago. This never happens, but I woke up Saturday morning at 3.30 in the morning, and I just had a dream. And I literally dreamed that I went to a concert of my music, and the performers didn't show up. So I thought, oh my God, i got to go out and improvise at the <laughs> piano. So I went and sat down at the piano, and it was awesome. Everybody was just loving it. And, you know, my friend was sitting on the side of the stage saying, yeah, that was great. <laughs> so I woke up, and, you know, I've had dreams about music before, but usually when I wake up, the music wasn't real. Like, I remember the experience, but I don't actually remember the music. And this time, I actually remembered the music and what I had done to improvise these these sounds. And I thought, either I can go back to sleep, which is what I want to do because it's 3.30 in the morning, or I can get up and write this down. So I dragged myself out of bed. <laughs> I went downstairs. I couldn't play the piano because my wife and kids were asleep. So I had to sit on the couch with the dog and, and write for hours trying to remember everything that I had uh, that I had done in the dream. And that became the series of pieces, uh, Glyph and Blender and Fires of 1918 and so on. I'm calling them the Blender collection right now. But it also came out of an inspiration. I went to a concert. Oh, maybe you know the venue. It's a, it's a little concert space right next to a bowling alley in Minneapolis. Oh, Bryant Lake Bowl? There it is. Yeah, yeah that's so right I, down the street. <laughs> exactly. I went to a concert there and I was blown away by the space because it's so weird. I mean, on the one hand, it's very relaxed. You can order, you can have a drink while you're listening to the music. But on the other hand, you're hearing people bowl right next door and it's really noisy. And so I just kept thinking, well, what's the music that I could write for a bar? And so that's also this a glyph and these pieces are partly my answer to that. So it's all got to be music that's amplified, that's done live, that has a um, improvisational component to it. And it's is a duet between someone at a laptop and someone at a piano. So that's what all these pieces were. It's great because I can sit there behind my laptop and be a part of the performance without actually practicing very much. And uh... see your music going from here on out <laughs> god knows i'm gonna find that one thing and do it for the rest of my career but i haven't found it yet <laughs> uh, i can tell you about an idea i have for a piece i'm starting right now and i'm very excited about it and i don't know if it's going to be a one-off or it's going to be great but i, I recently read an article about uh, repetition and it was, it was very interesting uh, author was talking about how important repetition is in all music and one of the experiments that she did I wish I could remember her name um, maybe you can look it up sure. <laughs> I'll send it yeah. to you put it in show notes or something but uh, um, she took music by Elliot Carter and Barrio or something like that and got some graduate student to go in and insert a lot of repetition inside of it you know cleverly kind of repeat sections and uh, then asked audiences to rate how much they liked the piece and then also things like whether this piece was written by a robot or not <laughs> and overwhelmingly they preferred the versions that had repetition in it oh <laughs> you know you think oh my god you know Elliot Carter this great composer and they preferred the version that some graduate student chopped up and looped right <laughs> but then she said she took it to a music theory conference played the loops for them and all these theorists said actually yeah I kind of like the repeaty version too <laughs> yeah so it got me thinking could I take, say, music of classic atonal composers and make loop-based music with 
with it. Right? I think I just happened to be reading this at the same time as I was working with a student who was doing uh, loop-based pieces for video games. And it just occurred to me, maybe I could put those two together. So what I've been doing is I've been taking relatively short loops from pieces. For example, um, the one I was working on last night, uh, I took a loop from the very beginning of Piero Lunaire. And interestingly, Schoenberg also loops it, right? Now, in a schoenberg way, but you hear it a lot more in that piece than you would in any of the other songs. And I think that's why that song is one of my favorites, because it's got this really cool loop that happens at the beginning. But my idea was, well, how far can you take that? Could I uh, layer that loop on top of itself? Could I slowly manipulate that loop inside Logic or Ableton or whatever? So it's not like this is a groundbreaking idea to take older music and then sample it and loop it. But as far as I know, it's not done quite as much with Schoenberg. And yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, by the way, my uh, uh, as I was playing this Piero, my daughter, who's six, came by and said, uh, I like that song. That's pretty good. Huh. <laughs> she said, not quite as good as Frozen, but pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a podcaster as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've been listening to your Simple Suttas. Yeah, Simple Suttas. <laughs> yeah. Would you want to explain that real quick? Sure. So um, I'm a Buddhist, and I, when I first came to Buddhism, I read a lot of kind of intro to Buddhism books and would hear talks. And uh, a few years later, I got kind of turned on to these ancient texts. And on the one hand, they're unbelievable, brilliant, psychologically profound, uh, spiritually profound texts. But really difficult. I mean, you know, hard to approach. Some of them are beautiful and easy and poetic and so on, and others are very, like, mind-bendingly difficult to wrap your head around. So the conceit with my podcast was, mostly, I'm doing translations of these suttas that are a lot more user-friendly, that anyone, whatever their experience of Buddhism, hopefully would be able to come in, read these, and get something out of that translation. So I use a lot less uh, jargon and so on. Well, your episode on being bored. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because <laughs> um, you bring up as a composer the importance of being bored. Oh my God, that's so true. I think now more than ever, it's really easy to go through your life never bored. No kidding. The other day I was playing a video game and I had my iPhone hooked up in my ears. So every time there was a load screen, I could just click the button and be listening to a podcast while the video game was loading up. And it's like, oh my God, how much more entertained can I be here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I could go through my day with no downtime in terms of either working or being entertained. But I also think that's a terrible loss. Nobody uh, has creative inspiration while they're being entertained. Uh, that, that's an exaggeration. But I, I think uh, a lot could be missed that way. So I personally take time every day to be quiet. One of the experiments I did was uh, a couple of years ago, I started reading about polyphasic sleeping. So I would only be sleeping three hours a day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> At first it was two hours a day, then it was three hours a day. And I remember very, you know, I, just, I had small kids, I was teaching full time, I was trying to compose, I had all these things going on. And I remember one night at like two in the morning, walking up the stairs and having this feeling like, what is this feeling? Oh, I'm bored. <laughs> and it was so great. It felt so amazing to be bored for once. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Even with 20 plus 
hours awake in the day. Right, right. Just... Well, that, that's what it took. That's what it finally took at that point in my life to get bored. You know, I'd, I'd done the dishes. I'd finished the grading. Nobody else was awake. It's in the middle of the night. Oh, great. I'm bored. Okay. It was wonderful. You know, it was at that same point in my life where I would be so happy if a flight got delayed. You know, because, oh my God, I don't have anything to do. I can walk around the airport and look at, you know, people and think. And, uh, but anyway, you know, meditation, one of the things people fight is being bored, but actually it's not a glitch. It's a benefit. So when you're in meditation, you're trying to turn off that flow of thinking to a certain extent and you can't do it, right? The only way you can get past that is to focus on something else, your breath or whatever your object of meditation. But when you're trying to think of an idea, it's, it's exactly that moment when you want the thinking mind to be kind of giving you information, giving you something to process. And it's being able to exercise that muscle of sitting back and noticing what you're even thinking about that can be so profound as a composer. Was there a certain point in your life where you felt like you, you got composing? Like you became proficient or... <laughs> I can always remember composing. I mean, I, I was composing when I was too little to remember. When you, if you mean making up little songs or making up things at the piano or things like that. On the other hand, it, it was a long time before I got any good at it. <laughs> and even then, I don't know if my hit rate is all that great <laughs> in terms of pieces. Uh, every time I sit down to write a piece, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> Almost every time I sit down and I think, I, I have in the back of my mind somewhere, you've done this a lot, right? You have all these pieces. You, surely you know how to write a piece of music. And you sit down and you think, nothing just nothing. And um, you sure wish that at a certain point it would get easy. And I know for some composers it is. It just comes out of them, you know, like breathing or whatever. But not for me. It's a struggle. I have to, you know, most of the time I really have to fight with a piece. Is there a favorite piece of yours that you've written? Usually it's whatever I'm thinking of at the moment. And then, uh, you know, my least favorite piece is the one I just finished. <laughs> Something like that. I certainly have, like, beautiful memories of the first piece I got a really great performance of. It was uh, The Day Floristan Murdered Magister Raro, this uh, Messian Quartet piece. It's, you know, it's really hard. It's not a piece that gets played often because it's really difficult, but I certainly have a soft spot for it. piece Janus Mask, another one that's that's really that's really difficult, <laughs> so it doesn't get played. Uh, it, it might be possible that like I've got a, a soft spot for the the hard, naughty, weird pieces that people don't like, and if anyone likes my piece too much, I feel like oh, I'm such a sellout. I, you know, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Janus Mask was one that won an ASCAP. Yeah, award. The, the this one. Uh, yeah. Did you apply for that, or did yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, that's one that you apply for, and that, that was a great thing for me. It really gave me a lot of confidence in grad school, and it was a validation for that piece. It was, you know, purely on spec. Nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted it <laughs> because, it, like I said, it's, you know, very, very difficult in every possible way. So what about it makes it really 
challenging for the players. You know, some pieces you write and you're thinking it's for this ensemble. I know their strengths. I know their weaknesses. I'm going to write it for them. And that's great. I mean, I really like that. But with this piece, it wasn't that at all. It was, I'm going to stretch myself as a composer. I'm going to see what I can do. And I'm not going to worry about the difficulty. I'm not going to worry about the complaints that I'm definitely going to get (laughs) when this goes on the stands. And uh, I was totally happy to write something that had, you know, lots of mixed meters, that was tonally adventuresome, that required the full range of almost everything every instrument in terms of difficulty. And boy, yes, I did hear the complaints. And frankly, the first time I got a reading from it, I thought it was a disaster. I mean, I really thought that I had completely blown it because uh, the orchestra was huffing and puffing and uh, the conductor was shaking his head. And what I was hearing was a lot of disasters. And then they gave me a CD, thankfully. You know, take this home. You can review the mess that you've made of your life. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I took it home and I was able to stitch together a good performance of every measure. They just didn't ever come consecutively. piece that's going to be on the CD in October is Album Leaves. And um, it's quite the opposite of Janus Mask. This is one that I intentionally made very playable, uh, including for myself. So I'm learning them myself. I want to be able to play them. The idea of, of calling it Album Leaves is that every piece is either, it was originally going to be only one page, but then some of them are also two pages. So, so short pieces, most of them are dedicated to a member of my family. So I wanted it to make it something that spoke to them. Uh, so, you know, there's one that's um, this very sweet, lovely, sentimental piece for my grandmother. for my wife. My wife's from China, and so it has these very Chinese resonances and the style of the melody. And then I have them play the inside of the piano with the the eraser of the pencil. So it has this quality of the guijing or something like that. So there's a, a musical coherence there. So it's all based on perfect fifths and minor seconds. But uh, you wouldn't have to know that to appreciate it, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. On that same CD, there's um, a piece called Cube Dance, uh, also for piano. That's just incredibly hard. I couldn't improvise a note of that. It was all out of my head. Yeah, I liked Cube Dance. Oh, that's, you know, that one was uh, Matt McCrae to commission that. So that, that was for him. Only time I've ever had this experience. I brought him the rough draft and he said, well, I like it. 
but could it be harder? <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, it could. <laughs> things you were doing with that one was there a rhyme or reason to how you came up with the rhythms the biggest idea that i had in that piece was i wrote a very short snippet a measure or two measures and then i loop it forever i mean you know i go for minutes so in the original sibelius file it, i worked and worked and got two measures this uses the clock system i mentioned before as well and when i got two measures that i like i literally copied and pasted it sometimes 200 times into Sibelius. And then most of what I did was cutting out from the most complicated version of these rhythms. So instead of starting with something really simple and then building on it, I started with the most complicated version of it and then subtracted, 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 so that you have this growth from something really simple to something really complex or just changing over time. So, for example, there'll be one passage where you'll hear a left-hand ostinato that's all eighth notes. And then you'll hear a melody, you know, a complete opposite end of the, uh, of the keyboard coming out in this kind of very lyric, long-lined melody. Well, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that it's all the same notes. I'm always playing it in, in octaves with the left hand and the right hand because that melody came from dramatic repetition of the left-hand part. And if you're hearing it the way I hope you'll hear it, then you'll hear slowly that melody speed up until the point where both hands are playing the same ostinato. I was going to ask you a piece like Wind Chimes, your piano piece, um, which I really liked. I was just trying to figure out how you would notate something like that because <laughs> it, it seems like very complex to, for someone to read it but it is uh you know it's one of these pieces that uh, i just shake my head at how stupid i am sometimes because the piece itself is like lovely and glittering and beautiful and your grandmother would like it and all that but to play it for one pianist is incredibly difficult they've got three different things that are happening between the hands and each of them in different rhythms and different speed you know it's a mess to try to perform but the answer is it's precisely notated. Nothing aleatoric. It's just I had to work out exactly how to let the thumbs share a line in the middle there and and make it all happen. Justin, it's been a pleasure having you on the show here. Hi, I've had a great time, Charlie. Thanks so yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. If people want to check out your music, where should they go? You should go to mooneast.com. My, years ago, my wife started a shoe importing business. Her name is Yue Dong, Moon East. So she called it 
mooneast.com. And then uh, when she gave up the shoe importing business, I took over the website. So now I've got <laughs> mooneast.com, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't, but it's, it's a beautiful it's name. Cool. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Justin Merritt. If you heard a piece you liked in this episode, visit composerquest.com slash Justin for the full list of music, along with contact info for Justin. Feel free to get in touch with me, either by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com, or by finding ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. I'll leave you now with some more of Justin Merritt's Wind Chimes. <laughs>